how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Ephesians. Well, now, when Paul wrote the letter to Philemon, that gave him the chance to send a letter also to the Colossians. But it's interesting that in the letter to the Colossians, he said he wanted this letter read not only at Colossae, but at Laodicea and at Hierapolis. So clearly it was the problem in this valley. At the same time, he thought, I'm going to send another letter that will be a general letter. And Paul realized that the best defense against such syncretism and mixtures was happening was a clear exposition of Christian belief and behavior. Always the best defense against heresy is solid, good teaching. And so I think Paul decided after writing Colossians, I'm going to write a general letter about the Christian faith and life that will really give them a solid foundation that will protect them from all these other things that are creeping in. So Colossians led to Ephesians, and they have much in common. When you read them both together, you can see that they were written together. The church is the body, household relationships. Interestingly enough, Philemon, Colossians, and Ephesians, all written at the same time, all major on slavery, which none of his other letters do. So that clearly this was one thing that was very much in his mind while he wrote all three letters. It is far less geared to the readers, Ephesians. It doesn't deal with any problems or any questions or any particular heresies at Ephesus. And as I've told you, the earliest copies of this letter don't even have the word Ephesus in. So it seems to have been a general letter to spread around this whole area. Now, the church at Ephesus, we know more about that church than any other church in the New Testament. In fact, there's a great deal in the New Testament about it. For example, chapters 18 to 20 of the book of Acts are about this church at Ephesus. And then we find this letter to the Ephesians, then we find 1 and 2 Timothy were both addressed to Timothy in Ephesus about the Ephesian church. Then we find in Revelation chapter 2 a letter to the church at Ephesus. And you probably don't know, but when we come to it, the first letter of John and the second and third letter were written in Ephesus because John the Apostle settled there with Mary, the mother of Jesus. And John's Gospel was written at Ephesus. So by and large, Ephesus was a key town in the history of the early church. And it's no wonder, therefore, that the epistle has somehow got identified with that focal church in this whole area of Asia. So we call it the church to the Ephesian, the epistle to the Ephesians, the church in Ephesus. It was at the intersection of the two east-west and north-south roads. It was a big port, though the port has now silted up and it's some way inland. In fact, Ephesus is now a ruin. It was one of 12 cities in the Ionian League, a center of commerce and finance, but it had the most enormous pagan temple, 420 feet square. Can you imagine the size of that? And that temple was dedicated to a meteorite, a black meteorite that fell out of space and fell on Ephesus. And it was a big black block of material, shiny black, and it had loads of bumps all over it. 
and each bump was the shape of a female breast. And this was regarded as the goddess Diana. Not princess, the goddess Diana. And the worship of the female breast. The temple to page 3 was here in Ephesus. And this many-breasted meteorite was set on the altar. And little silver reproductions were sold of this meteorite. And people would come as tourists and take home one of these little silver meteorites, copy of Diana of the Ephesians, the goddess with many breasts. And they would put it on the mantelpiece at home. And that business suffered as soon as Paul came to Ephesus. And in fact, the first trouble he got into was from the silversmiths because trade just disappeared and they couldn't sell any more meteorite statues in silver. Well, it's an extraordinary place as Ephesus. But the church was well established here. And if you go there today, they will still point out the ruins of the church of St. John and the ruins of the grave of Mary. And it is 99% certain that this is where the aged John the Apostle, after Mary's death, himself died. The only apostle to die naturally. Every other apostle was put to death. But John lived to old age. And if you remember the study in John's Gospel, that was a great blessing to us because he'd been with Jesus for 60 years when he wrote his Gospel. It was a very beautiful insight into Jesus. Now, Paul clearly felt that the best thing he could do to prevent the syncretism in Asia ruining the church was to send a letter with a summary of Christian belief and behavior. It's the nearest he ever got to a statement of his gospel. Romans is not a statement of his gospel, as I told you when we studied that letter. But Ephesians is the nearest he got to a systematic exposition of Christian belief and behavior. Let me just show you what a sophisticated place Ephesus was. Uh, and that's the ruins of it. You can imagine how grand the city was in his day. That's the main street. And if you can imagine the, on the hill, the temple, 420 feet square, with this meteorite in it, which was the pagan religion of that place. Well, now let's look first at the major division in the letter of, to the Ephesians, a very significant division. Everybody who reads it sees very clearly that it's in two equal halves and that these halves are quite different. And this tells you something about Paul's gospel. The first half is about our relationship to God in Christ. The second half is about our relationship to others in the Lord. Interesting, when he talks about our relationship to God, he uses the word Christ. But when he talks about our relationships with each other in the Lord. And it just emphasizes Lord, the boss of our relationships. It is Christ who gives us our relationship to God, but as the Lord, he governs our relationship with each other. The first half, therefore, is what I call salvation worked in, and the second half is salvation worked out. And I'm quoting there from his letter to the Philippians. Work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you. And salvation is something that is worked into us first, but then must be worked out in our daily living. So the first half is about doctrine and the second half about duty. 
The first is about what we are saved by, and the second is what we are saved for. And the key point there is we are not saved by good deeds, but we are saved for good deeds. That's very important. The world thinks we're saved by being good. The gospel is we're saved for being good. Totally different. The first, therefore, concentrates on the blessing of forgiveness. The second half concentrates on the need for holiness. The first, therefore, is about our justification, which means getting right with God, and the second about our sanctification, being right in our lives. The first half concentrates, therefore, on our release, our redemption, our rescue. The second half concentrates on our response. The first half concentrates on worship and adoration. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless Him. But the second half is about application, working it out. The first half, therefore, emphasizes divine sovereignty. And we're going to have to look at this question of predestination, which comes right to the surface in chapter 1. But the second half, human responsibility. There's a balance in all these things. The first half concentrates on God's purpose and His power. Those are the two key words in the first half. What God intends to do and the power He has to achieve that purpose. But the second half concentrates on our walk and our warfare. We are to walk in the light, walk in love, walk as children of the light, and we are to fight in spiritual warfare. That's our side of it. So the first half is really concentrating on what happens inside church and the second half on what happens outside church. The first half is dealing with the vertical dimension of the gospel. The second half is dealing with the horizontal dimension of the gospel. Now, let me just say two things about this. Number one, we must keep both together. We really must. A gospel that doesn't work out in life is not the full gospel. A gospel that just saves us and gives us a ticket for heaven but doesn't affect our life is not the gospel. That's the first thing. We must have both. And the second, more important thing is we must have them in this order. See, when I say we must have both, there are some people who think that Christianity is just being a do-gooder. That's an awful distortion. But it's equally distorted to say Christianity is just being saved. Do you see what I mean? We must have both. But we must have them in this order because every other religion in the world puts sanctification before justification. It says you must be good before God can accept you. Every other religion says you must do this and then you'll be accepted by God. Christianity is unique. It says you're accepted by God first, just as you are, in order that He may make you what He wants you to be. It is justification that must come before sanctification. You cannot live the Christian life until you've been saved. Do you see that? So we've got to have both and we've got to have them in this order. And Christian behavior is built on Christian belief. Christian duty flows from Christian doctrine. And that is what Ephesians tells us right from the beginning. Now, we're going to look not at this half, but at the first half, chapters 1 to 3. 
And when we do, we find that chapters 1 to 3 are actually in the form of a service of worship. And clearly Paul is, is giving us this doctrine of salvation in the context of a service of worship. And so he begins by praising God, then he moves into praying, then he moves into preaching, then he does some more praying and finishes with praising. Now once you've got that outline of a kind of order of worship, you'll see that uh, doctrine is given in the context of worship. And it's not just preaching, it's preaching in a sandwich of prayer and praise that comes over so that uh, right at the beginning he starts off to the praise of his glory. He keeps coming to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. Blessed be God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. It, it's a hymn of praise. And then he says, I pray for you. Now his praise is for God's purpose to sum up all things in Christ. That's God's purpose to get everything into Christ, his Son. And then he prays for God's purpose and power for the readers of his letter, that God may reveal his purpose to you and give you the power to achieve it in your life. Purpose, power, purpose, power, all the way through. Then he enlarges in a kind of sermon that has three points on God's power and purpose as revealed in, number one, as revealed in Christ. God's power and purpose has raised up Christ over all. And then he said God's power and purpose is, is seen in raising up Gentiles and enabling them to rejoin his people, those who are far from Israel are now citizens of Israel. And the middle wall of partition has been broken down between Jew and Gentile. You know that uh, part. I want to show you something. There it is, I think. Some years ago, archaeologists were digging in the temple ruins of Jerusalem and they found this stone. It's a lump of limestone and there was lettering on it and the lettering was picked out in red paint. And when they deciphered the lettering, it said, whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame if death ensues. And this was the stone in the temple of Jesus' day on the middle wall of partition between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the Jews. And the death sentence was on any person, a Gentile who came beyond that wall or anybody who brought a Gentile beyond that wall. And that's why Paul was arrested. Do you remember? He was accused falsely of having brought a Gentile past that warning notice. In fact, though he hadn't done that physically, he'd done it spiritually all over the world because <laughs> that's what his preaching was doing. He was bringing Gentiles into the Holy of Holies and that's the purpose of God, to bring the whole world into the holy place. So that's a little background to Ephesians 2. You see, you read a phrase like the middle wall of partition, it doesn't sort of speak to you, does it? But when you see the death notice like that, boy, it comes home to you. And Paul is saying, you can come right in now to God through Christ. And his purpose is revealed in Paul being raised up. So the three examples of God's power and purpose are Christ raised up to reign over all, the Gentiles raised up to rejoin his people, and Paul being raised up to reveal this mystery that God wants one people, Jew and Gentile, in Christ. And he wants the whole world 
to be summed up in Christ. So Paul then prays, this time not for his purpose and power for his readers, but for his power and purpose, that they may know the power of God who is able to do exceeding and abundantly above all that we ask or think. And then he just has to finish up by praising that power, this God who can do far more than we can ever imagine. It's a service of worship. And you can see the outline of praise, prayer, preaching, praying, praise. Maybe you've never seen that as you've read it through, but that, that first half of Ephesians, you could well base a whole service of worship on it and just go through. Uh, but the theme of the whole thing is God's power and his purpose. Begins by praising God's purpose and finishes by praising his power. And it's all God's great power and purpose, his purpose, his intention, and the power he has to fulfill that intention so that nothing can stop God doing what he intends to do. That's his sovereignty. Well, now that's a rough outline of one to three. Let's have a look at the outline of chapters four to six, which are totally different. And this time it's concerned with our response, what we do after we've worshipped, what we do after we've come to realize all that is true in chapters one to three how it affects our lives. And the first thing we're called to do is to walk. You can jump in the Spirit, you can leap in the Spirit, but what God is looking for is people who walk in the Spirit. And walking is not so spectacular as leaping and jumping, is it? But walking, it's a funny thing really, you lift up one foot and you put it down about 18 inches in front of the other, and then you lift the other one up and you put it down in front of this one. So what's so important about that? Walking is taking one step at a time in the right direction. That's all. It's not very spectacular or sensational, but God is looking for people who will walk, who will walk in light, walk in love, walk in as children of God. It's our walk that matters, not our leaping and jumping. <laughs> that, there's a place for that, but it's the walk, the step-by-step -step journey. See, Christianity is a journey, it's a pilgrimage, it's the way. That was the first name for it, the way. And that's the name of Christ, I am the way. So, he says there are seven, eight things we're to walk in. To walk in humility, because that is the secret of unity. You cannot have Christian unity if you don't have humility. Wherever there is pride, unity is broken. The first thing that we're called on to walk is humility. And when you realize what God knows about you, boy, you walk in humility. Now, I got upset at one stage because lies were being told about me. And there were closing doors of ministry that was about seven or eight years ago. And I was upset because doors of ministry were closing. I went to God and I had a good old bind about it. And do you know what he said to me? He said, David, the worst they can say about you is not as bad as the truth. <laughs> and, you know, I burst out laughing. I told my wife, she burst out laughing too. Boy, did it relieve me. And then he said, but I still love you and I still use you. See? So whenever I hear a lie said about me now, I say, well, thank God they don't know the truth. <laughs> you see? And Jesus does know the truth. He knows everything about you and that keeps you humble he knows. Walk in humility. It's so easy for us even to, oh, let me quote a little poem. 
Once in a saintly passion I cried with desperate grief, O Lord, my heart is black with guile, of sinners I am chief. Then stooped my guardian angel and whispered from behind, Vanity, my little man, you're nothing of the kind. <laughs> you know, there, there's, there's even a false modesty, and false modesty is not humility. You know, oh, I couldn't do that. Oh, no, don't ask. I can't do anything. That's a false modesty. Real humility says, what I am, I am by the grace of God. And if it wasn't for His grace, where on earth would I be today? Walk in humility. And then walk in unity. Because there's only one body, there's only one spirit, there's only one faith, there's only one baptism, there's only one God and Father of us all. Then walk in unity. Because whatever disagreements we may have, we were all saved by the same Jesus. By the same blood, we're heading for the same future. We have the same spirit. Walk in unity. Walk in maturity. He goes on from unity to growing up to the full stature of Jesus Christ. And that's why God has given us apostles and prophets, pastors, evangelists, teachers. He's given us all these gifts to build us up so that we might mature and grow up. And one of the signs of growing up is that we come to unity of the faith. The basis for fellowship is not unity of the faith, but unity of the Spirit until we attain the unity of the faith. Now, too many evangelicals have made doctrinal agreement the basis of unity and therefore criticize some of us who have fellowship with, say, Catholic charismatics. But the basis of unity is one spirit. And when I meet someone who's been baptized in the same spirit as I was baptized in, I have fellowship with them. We may not yet have achieved the unity of the faith. That'll come with maturity. So Paul says, maintain the unity of the spirit until we all attain the unity of the faith. The goal is to believe the same thing. That's not the beginning, it's the goal. You get it? Whenever you meet someone in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, they're part of the one body of Christ. Even if they've got a bit mixed up doctrinally, you may not have got it all right either. You may still have to unlearn a few things you thought were the truth. Until we all attain to the stature of Jesus and the unity of the faith and are no longer tossed about with every wind of doctrine. Walk in integrity. Chapter 5 begins a list of moral integrity. Don't crack dirty jokes. It's as practical as that. He says that in the middle of that chapter. An integrity of character that doesn't let yourself down. Walk in charity with each other. There's that note again, forgiving each other as Christ forgave you. Christians are charitable and tolerant. They're not tolerant of error or sin, but they're tolerant with each other and charitable towards each other. Walk in purity. Go on being filled with the Holy Spirit, he says. Walk in purity of motive, purity of heart, and I've added docility. Um, trouble is, all these words, servant, servile, subservient, have become dirty words, haven't they? But there is a submission, submitting to one another in Christ, that is a beautiful sign of maturity. Walk in docility. Again, he mentions the three. 
wives towards husbands, children towards parents, slave towards masters or employers. Be willing to submit. But then comes the other side of it, to walk in responsibility. And it's here that he says some things to husbands which are very challenging. Husbands, love your wives as Jesus loves the church. My wife has said to me more than once, when you submit to Christ, I'm happy to submit to you. See, that's the responsibility side. And husbands, parents, and employers have the responsibility towards those who put their lives in their hands. It's a very practical walk. It's not spectacular. Walking is one step at a time, day by day, stepping in the right way. From the walk, we go on to warfare, and again, this is such a popular section of Ephesians, read so many times in church about the Christian armor, put on the whole armor of God. We are not fighting human beings. It's much easier to fight human beings, and I'm afraid Christians are sometimes tempted to get into a battle with other human beings. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in the heavenly places, precisely where we've been placed in Christ. We sit with him in heavenly places. You think I'm standing at high lead, don't you? That's what your senses tell you, but you're quite wrong. I'm actually sitting down at the moment. My real self is sitting with Christ in heavenly places. That's my real situation. My body's standing here in Hali. But the minute I die, I will cease to be aware of where my body is, and all I'll be aware of is where my spirit is, seated with Christ in heavenly places. In a real sense, a Christian's already gone to heaven. But his senses keep telling him that he's on earth, so he forgets it from time to time. But he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places and made us sit with him in heavenly places. That's where we really are. You're not sitting in Hali, you're sitting in Christ. That's your real address. And the minute your body senses cease to operate, the only sense you will have of seated will be seated with him in the heavens. But that's where the principalities and powers are as well. And so whenever you get into the heavenly places, you get into conflict, and you need the armor of God if you're going to stand. The one thing you never do is retreat. There is no armor for your back whatsoever. So you never turn your back. You never retreat. You may not be able to walk at times, but having done all else, you stand, and you never take a backward step. Jesus said if you turn back, it's like a man plowing, turning back. You can't do that. No retreat. So there's armor for your front, but none for your back. <laughs> I find that very interesting. You stand, above all, you stand, and you put up that shield of faith. Actually, the shield he refers to was a wooden shield covered with leather, very soft wood. You think, well, what kind of a shield is that? The Roman soldiers used it because fiery darts that came plunged into the wood and were extinguished. And all the fiery darts, the evil one, <laughs> are absorbed by the faith that you have and extinguished by that faith. Every piece of that armor is significant. You need your head covered. You need your heart covered. You need to pull yourself together and have a tight belt from which hangs your sword. and It's all there, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. So the warfare, we need armor, and we not only need protection, but he says, above all, praying in the Spirit. That's your biggest weapon. You need protection, but you need prayer, praying in the Spirit. Well, I've just summarized Ephesians 4 to 6. My, we could... How much time have I got? 
let me see, I've got about 12 minutes to deal with predestination, then let's deal with it and deal with it head on because again, I think mistaken understanding of predestination can really create havoc. And sometimes people can talk as if we are just robots or puppets and we can't resist God. I'm so glad for the thought for the day, we are cooperators, co-workers with God. There's a dynamic relationship between God and human beings in the Bible. You know, there's a song, you are the potter, we are the clay, as if, you know, there's nothing I can do, it's just, he just uh, plays around with me like a potter with clay. But you go back to Jeremiah 18 where the prophet was sent to the potter's house to learn the lesson of the potter and the clay, and the potter had every intention of making the clay into a beautiful vase, but the clay would not run in his hands. So he put it back into a lump and put it back on the wheel and made a crude, thick cooking pot. And God said, Jeremiah, did you learn the lesson of the pot and the clay? The potter predestined that clay to be a beautiful vase, but the clay would not run in his hands, so he made it a crude pot. Now that's predestination. It means literally that God has decided a destiny for you, but that does not mean that he will force it on you. It means that if you respond to him, the destiny which he planned for you from the foundation of the world will be yours. But there is nothing in that to suggest that if he predestines you to be something, you can't help being something. You see what I mean? That clay missed its predestination. The potter wanted to make it a beautiful vessel. And God then said to Jeremiah, I wanted to make Israel a beautiful vessel holding my mercy. Instead, I've got to make them an ugly vessel holding my judgment. But if they repent, I'll make them into a beautiful vessel again. God never predestined us to be a crude pot of judgment. He predestined us to be beautiful vessels of mercy. Can I put it this way? My father knew I wanted to be a farmer, spent every holiday on the farm, and when I left school at 16, I went to work on the farm, milked 90 cows every morning at 4 o'clock, and I loved farming. And I didn't know, but my father had planned for me to take over a farm in Scotland when I was 21 years of age to rent it. He'd arranged it was a farm in the family. And uh, when I pass that farm today, I think I might still be milking cows on that farm. Actually, the Lord Jesus stepped in first and told me what he wanted me to do. But my father did tell me one day that uh, that farm was ready for me at 21, and I had to say, it's too late. But had I accepted that farm, I could always have said, my father predestinated me to be on this farm. He planned it before I even knew about it. Now, does this begin to... To predestine means literally to decide a destiny beforehand. But the idea that some people then spring from that is that God simply treats us as puppets and makes us do what he's predestined. He doesn't. He predestines us to glory. You can resist and refuse that predestiny, or you can accept it. And if you accept it, you can say forever afterwards, he planned this for me before the foundation of the world. So let's look at the two views of predestination. The common view, as people understand it, is that predestined means that individuals are chosen to be saved 
whereas others are chosen not to be. And that God has decided long before anything we did that uh, we, I would be one of the saved and that was it. And therefore it believes that grace is irresistible, that you cannot resist God's grace, that once God has decided you'll be saved, you'll be saved, that's it. There's nothing you can do about it. You cannot resist His grace. And therefore your destiny is determined by God's choice. It is entirely God's choice whether a person ends up in heaven or hell. God has chosen and that's it. And therefore a person who is lost is lost not because of anything they've done but because they weren't chosen. And that therefore you are born again before you repent and believe because until you're born again you can't repent and believe that God chose you rebirths you and then you start repenting and believing and that therefore your perseverance in the faith is guaranteed because grace is irresistible and it is now absolutely certain that you'll finish up in heaven. That's the common notion of predestination. It's often associated with a man called Calvin. Actually Calvin didn't teach that. It was his successor, a man called Beza, who taught it and many people get quite confused between Calvin and Beza and call it Calvinism. Actually Calvin taught in his institutes that you can lose your salvation. So it's a great pity he's often labelled with a view that wasn't really his. But that's another story. If you study predestination in the Bible, it is not so much that you're chosen for salvation but that you're chosen for service. It is not so much your privilege as your responsibility to be one of the chosen people. You're chosen for service. Furthermore, the emphasis is not on the choice of individuals but on the choice of a people, a chosen people, an elect people. <coughs> Furthermore, if you study it carefully, grace is not ir irresistible. It can be resisted. It's conditional on your faith. If you believe, if you continue in the faith. Next, your destiny, therefore, in heaven and hell is not dependent on God's choice but on yours. Whether you choose to respond to His grace or choose to resist it. Next, we are born again after repenting and believing, not before. That it is because we've repented and believed that God can give us new life in Christ. Next, that your perseverance is something that is required rather than guaranteed that you persevere, that you abide in the vine, that you become an overcomer, that you stay in Christ, that you go on believing. This is not salvation by works but salvation by continued faith. And that's an important emphasis to make. Well, this is often associated with a man called Arminius and people often dismiss this view as Arminianism without ever having read Arminius. I've just been working through his works at Dutchman and my, that man really was such a godly man that no one ever dared to disagree with him during his lifetime. They only attacked him after his death. He lived such a godly life. And when you read his writings, I'm not ashamed to be associated with that man. But the important thing is not whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminianist. What is important is what does the Bible say about this? I believe in predestination. I believe God predestined me to be what I am. I believe He settled the issue that He wanted me in heaven before I even knew He existed. And He loved me before I loved Him and He chose me rather than I chose Him. Having said all that, I believe that it was because I didn't resist His grace.
and received it and go on believing that I shall finish up in that celestial city. Now, I just share that with you because a lot does hang on it. There is a very naughty cliché which has been widely diffused called once saved, always saved. That's a horrible phrase. Apart from anything else, what does once saved mean? I'm being saved. I've still got a lot more that I have to be saved from. I'm being saved. We are being saved. Salvation is a process, not an instantaneous miracle. And therefore, like others, I'm waiting for His second coming when He will bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. That's when I'll be once saved, because all of me will be saved then, including this old body. Now, I just share that with you. I don't want to divide from you over this. I don't think we should let this spoil Christian fellowship. But I believe that that kind of predestination creates havoc in people's thinking because it really undercuts this dynamic relationship between the clay and the potter. The potter decided he wanted to make me a beautiful person like Christ. He predestined me for that. He decided that long before I was born. But then when I was 17, he touched my life with his grace. And I could choose then either to resist that grace or to accept it. And in accepting it, I accepted his predestination of me. That's a di- what I mean by a dynamic relationship. And the one thing it doesn't do, that concept doesn't ever say that God didn't choose others to be saved. Because my Bible says God desires all men to be saved. And if he desires it, what is stopping him doing it? Other than the refusal of people and those who resist his spirit. I find right through the Bible you can grieve his spirit, you can resist his spirit. The first Christian martyr accused his executors, you always resist the Holy Spirit. It is possible to resist even God. That does not make God weaker than me. God, in his incredible love, has made himself vulnerable to our refusal. That's the amazing thing, that God will never force anyone to be his child and never force anyone to go to heaven and never make anyone a Christian. But by his prevenient grace and predestinating love, he has decided a destiny which he wants every man, woman, and child to have. And he's prepared that for those who love him. Well, to me, it's not so much a matter of doctrine, but of dynamic and of experience. I know that he chose me before I chose him. I know that he decided all this before I ever even knew about it. But I knew also that I have the terrible capacity to refuse to be what God wants me to be. I want to be that. Let's pray. Father, we can get so bogged down in doctrine and theology, but we want to praise you that you are God and that you chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Thank you for the day when you stepped into our life and your grace became a real experience. We thank you for enabling us to repent and to believe and that we didn't resist that. We give you the praise and the glory. We thank you that you're going to sum up all things in Christ and that your power will achieve your purpose 
and that you've called us to be part of that purpose and we gladly and willingly surrender to your grace and to your spirit that you may be all in all and that we may praise you forever when our salvation is complete when Jesus returns for his name's sake. Amen. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.